Aren't you grateful for His grace this morning? We'll be reminded of that again as we turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And if you're visiting with us today or you don't have your Bible, you can use the blue Bible in the pew pocket in front of you. And you'll find that on page 6. We're picking up where we left off on the story of Noah. It began in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. It continues through chapter 7 and 8, on into chapter 9, ending at verse 29 with Noah's death. But we didn't finish the story. And I think you'll find the ending of this particular book within Genesis pretty surprising. And for that very reason, even though it is a longer text, I ask that we would read to begin uh, Genesis 9, verses 1 through 29. I'll read for us. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. From man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. 
These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I don't know how you feel about horrible endings, but I hate them. I don't care if it's a book or a movie. If I've taken the time to follow a storyline and it seems to have a great resolution, nothing ticks me off more. Well, not nothing. Few things tick me off more than for it to be ruined in the last couple of minutes. Now, I will not at this point go and list all of those movies which I think have done that or books, but we all know that the bad taste that's resonant in the mouth after a story that seems blown up at the end. Friends, with all due respect to the word, it would seem, operative words seem, that whoever originally penned this account And we know that Moses is the editor of some stories that he inherited earlier. Whoever did this, these are the generations of Noah story, seems to have blown it right at the the very end. This is a horrible, horrible ending. But the question that remains with us in light of this ending is... Is it intentional? Is it intentional? The author could have ended the story with the covenant established with Noah and the flood and this promise that life would continue. And yet he picks up the quill, if you will, and continues to pen. Of all the stories he could tell about Noah's 900-plus-year life, he puts this one in there. And so the question before us, outstanding today, is why? What is this about? I would like you to try to figure it out as we make our way through the text. This really is an anti-story. Most stories begin with a horrible beginning and a happy ending. There's conflict, then there's resolution. This one's turned totally on its head. This one starts with a happy beginning, 
but a horrible ending. And so let's look at the two in turn to see if we can discern what the author, God, is trying to say to us today through this text. Let's begin with the happy start. That is in verses 1 through 17. If you divide up the story into two parts, you've got the happy start and the horrible ending, and the start is in verses 1 through 17. Now, let me just read verses 1 through 7 to get us going. Or actually, just verse 1, and then we'll get to verse 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Jump down to verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, we remember the context of what has just happened. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying the book of Genesis and We have just seen Noah and his family step off of the ark after God pours his wrath and judgment upon the entire planet. Some have been saved through the obedience of Noah. Noah, at the end of this, offers a sacrifice, chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, and this sacrifice is so effective before God that it says that the aroma of the sacrifice filled his nostrils. He found it to be pleasing. And then, in light of Noah's sacrifice, God commits that he will never destroy the earth again in a flood. It's a very positive outcome. And so, here we see the continuation of that. God continues to, through this section uh, to express this commitment to preserve the world. And he expresses it in a couple of ways. If you're a note taker, it might be helpful to see that the two ways in which he expresses this commitment, the the two ways in which I would say that this is a happy start. The first is his plan or his command. That's verses 1 through 7. The plans or the commands that God gives Noah show that he is very intent on this being a good world moving forward. They're not those kind of oppressive commands, those, those ones you don't want to obey. Like, these are the ones that you're like, yes, thank you, I, I, I like this. And then there will also be a promise or a covenant. So there's plans and commands, and then there's a promise or covenant in verses 8 through 17. And both of these show that God has good things in mind for His world. That's why I say it's a happy start. When you look at these plans or commands, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9 show that there's a new start here, and it is like the reset button has been pressed. There is a clean slate, and you know what? It sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Let me look at verses 1 through 3. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Notice, when was the last place you heard that? Genesis chapter 1. Notice this. There's still dominion over the animals. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And notice this, into your hand they are delivered. When I say to you that this is in your hands now, I sell you a car, I give you the keys, hand equals possession. God is saying to them, hey, you still own it. You still rule it. You still reign over it. You still enjoy a measure of sovereignty. Notice this in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. 
Not only do you own it, but I say this respectfully, I'm not trying to be crude, but you may eat it. Uh, That's the ultimate expression of sovereignty over something. Not just possessing it, but consuming it for your well-being and good. And so he says about animal life at this point that you can even eat animals. That is something that was not told to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And the question often comes, well, why? Why does it change now? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but I would make a scientific guess. Since they're stepping off of an ark and they don't have very many means of nourishment, this would be a very practical way for them to get the protein needed to sustain the life work that God would call them to from the very beginning. And so God would allow that to continue. And quite frankly, I'm glad that he has allowed it to continue. But the point is that man owns it. He rules over it. This is just like the very beginning. Remember the time that we spent in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 reflecting on God's good plan for us to rule over his creation? I mean, it was just an awesome thought. And and God is saying, here, we're getting back to it. You rule over it. And friends, the truth of the matter is we do rule over it. Often we sing at our church, we even thought about singing it today, this is my father's world. It's true. Uh, This is our father's world. But did you know or ever consider that this is your world too? There's a sense in which mankind owns it. When you swim in the ocean, and when you bike across the land, and when you fly across the skies, it is man's. It is his to do with as he chooses. God has given us that. Not only do we own the land, if you will, but we also rule over all created life. Despite the uh, attempts, well, this this is probably a good example of one of those movies that ends badly. The Planet of the Apes. You get to the end, and then you realize, sorry to ruin this for anybody, but Heston makes it to the end, and he realizes that the planet that he was on was Earth itself, and the apes had conquered. Well, listen, friends, uh, no matter how many times they try to make that a great movie, It is not a compelling storyline because apes will never rise up and rule over the planet. It has never happened. By the way, my theorizing as to where dinosaurs were extinct is because mankind realizes, man, these things are threatening. We're going to kill them off. (laughs) Man always prevails over the animal kingdom. Nobody's worried about a coup of monkeys coming and taking over the church this morning. We rule. We rule over the land. We rule over the animals. This is a blessed privilege. Things are returning to the way they were. There is sovereignty, but but it is tinged with savagery. Something's different this time around. We're not getting back to the Garden of Eden. We're getting after the flood. It's different. It's a little bloody. Notice how he says in verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground. This isn't a rule of love, if you will. Now it is a rule of fear. God would instill within the animals an instinct to actually run away from man because, well, quite honestly, 
man could now eat them. There's a savage relationship that now is introduced into the world. There is a violence that is extant that was not here before. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Notice verse 4. God modifies, he needs to modify the command some because of the savage world. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. He even wants to make sure that man just doesn't lose all sense of the value of life whatsoever and just start eating animals alive. There's that brutality. And that's why, by the way, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, mankind would be forbidden from eating animals with the blood still in them. I don't know all the appropriate ethical expressions of how you should order your steak or whatever. But I will say that God does put some limitations on this. He doesn't give man free reign just to be a savage. He wants man, this is interesting, he wants man to value life. Because historically, you look back just a few years, how was the earth characterized? By violence. By brutality. And in the new place, to make sure, to start in this, with this clean slate, God would have to put extra provisions in place to make sure that mankind would not exercise the same brutality that he exercised before. And he's not just concerned about mankind's treatment of the animal kingdom, he's concerned about something even greater. And what is that? It is mankind himself. Notice that even though animals are regulated, you can't eat them alive, it says in verse Five, excuse me, in verse 4, you can still eat them. Verse 5, but you do not mess with the lifeblood of another human being. Notice the, the verb that keeps getting repeated here. It's, it's rather ominous. He says, and for your lifeblood, talking about another human being, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the account, or excuse me, reckoning for the life of man. Do you see how God is setting it up here? He's saying there will be a special measure of vindication and vengeance that will be expressed to you by God himself if you choose to take the life of another human being. Life will be valued in this new creation. He even says that this will apply to animals. If an animal accidentally kills another human being, it will be put to death. And even if a brother, this speaks to the brotherhood of humanity since we all come from Noah anyway, even if a brother kills a brother, he will be put to death. And notice in your Bibles the little poetical setup of verse 6. See how it breaks it up and makes it different? This is Hebrew poetry because it does that mirror image thing again. It's going to mention three different ideas in one order, and then it's going to mention them again in reverse order. See if you can pick up on it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. You see the, the reverse? Shedding blood, man, man shedding blood. It's reflected very well in the English. The poetry is used to emphasize something. The poetry is used to say that if you take life, life will be taken from you. And, and notice this, it doesn't just happen by divine fiat, like God strikes someone dead. 
but it happens by the hand of man. This verse is actually the foundation for government. Government has the authority and the power to execute what Paul calls in Romans 13, the sword. Most countries have some form of capital punishment by which they will choose to use to protect life. And God here sets the basis for it. He lays the foundation and says, this will be so bad that you will need to execute another who participates in this particular sin. Life must be valued in this new world. But notice this, it isn't just that it needs to be valued. It needs to be valued for a particular reason. Why? For, verse 6, God made man in his own image. It's the image of God that, that underscores the importance of preserving life. Because any time one person terminates the life of another, they are actually attacking the statue that represents God himself. You've seen that, right? Just think back to your own understanding of world history and some new people group takes over. What's the first thing that they do? They destroy all the statues of the previous ruler. Why? Because they represent him. They don't want anything to image him. Friends, murder of any kind is a defacing of the image of God. Every man and woman and boy and girl and child, life in the womb and life near the tomb, all represents God in a special way. They all uniquely possess a capacity to represent His good rule over creation in some way, shape, or form. And even if they suffer from some form of disability, when God chooses to recreate the earth, that capacity will be restored to them. And you and I do not have a right to eliminate that which seems inconvenient or broken. This is foundational to our worldview. This informs your politics. This informs how you spend your money. This informs who you partner with. This is a big deal. The way that God set up the world from the very beginning is beautiful because it values life. I mean, if you think about the way that God intended, I mean, with this good plan, with this good command, think about how the world would be if people took this responsibility seriously. I mean, people would actually give a rip about others being slaughtered. I think it would probably challenge some of our American notions of everything's okay here, so it doesn't matter if there's genocide in some third world country. It certainly informs the modern abortion debate, does it not? I'm glad to know that everyone in this room that I know of is passionately defending the right to life. But I hope at the same time we would condemn those who would bomb or shoot others who would choose to take that life. Vengeance is not ours. Remember the 2000s and 2010? Just as heinous as killing a child in the womb is killing someone else who may choose to do so. We do not have the right to do that. That is the government's job. That is not ours. But the point that I'm trying to make is that if everyone valued life, this would be an awesome planet. If there was a dignity to life, can you imagine how great things would be? But instead, we've ended up with something different. 
I don't want to get too philosophical, but I would say that the, the prevailing idea of the day isn't God's command for the sanctity of life, but it's what's called utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill. Utilitarianism is the idea that, well, we're not that big a deal anyway, so therefore we need to do whatever makes us happy. You want to determine what's right or wrong? Does it make you feel good? Do it. Well, when you start telling everybody that the most moral thing to do in the earth is to pursue their own happiness, now life is no longer valuable. And if something is going to be an inconvenience to them, that means it can be eliminated. You don't want to take care of your aging parents? Encourage them to do assisted suicide. You don't want to raise a child in this world because you would have to pay some money and it would tether you down? Just kill it. It is the savage, barbaric world that we live in, in natural defiance to God's good plan. And so what I'm trying to show you is that God set up a very good world. These commands, these plans that he gives are good. And you're thinking, wow, here's a God who is committed to life. Oh, by the way, he's not just committed to the protection of life. He's committed to the propagation of life. Look at verse 7 again. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It isn't just don't kill, don't kill, don't kill. It's advanced life. Have kids. Encourage other people to have kids. Adopt children. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And that's the way God set it up. He's committed to preserving the world. We see it through his plans and his commands. But we also see it in his promise and covenant. Look at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, pause here for a moment because we don't use the word covenant very often. We've only seen it one other time in Genesis, and that was back in chapter 6. God briefly says to Noah as he's given him the instructions on the ark that, hey, just keep in mind, I will establish my covenant with you. I'm going to preserve you because I have something good in mind for you. Now, we don't know yet, if we're just reading the Bible, what a covenant really is, but here we get our first full picture. And basically, if I could unpack it for you in just a brief synopsis of what the whole Bible teaches about covenant, it is entering into a formal relationship, typically with a superior. There's two kinds of covenants in the Bible. There's bilateral and unilateral. One party and two party. Um, a bilateral covenant would be a king who actually makes an alliance with another country and he agrees to afford them this type of protection if they agree to actually pay him a certain amount of tribute. That makes sense, right? A unilateral covenant is actually like a king coming into an area and actually telling them, look, just out of good measure, I want to protect you and provide you and care for you. You have been ruled by this savage nation. We will battle on your behalf and we will include you in our kingdom for your good and protection. That's a unilateral covenant. So it's a relational agreement. What we see here is a unilateral covenant God, in and of himself, chooses to enter into a relationship, a special relationship 
with mankind. Mankind doesn't enter into the relationship with God. The Noahic covenant that we're looking at now is God entering into a relationship with the created world. Now, that's important for you to remember because most of us assume that we get to enter into a relationship with God whenever we jolly well please, typically when we're in some trouble. Dear God, things are horrible right now. If you will just fill in the blank, I will now start living the way I'm supposed to. Anybody ever made one of those deals before or tried to? Uh, Yeah, you know you have. But it doesn't work that way. You don't cut deals with God. He holds all the cards. He cuts deals with you. Listen, I don't enter into a business agreement with Bill Gates. I've got nothing to offer. But he could choose to enter into a business agreement with me. What you need to see here is that the key to understanding covenant is that it is always of God's initiative. God is the one who initiates here. He is the one that chooses of his own good will to enter into this relationship. And so let's see then what this covenant is all about. What are the benefits of this relationship that he's going to establish with Noah and company? We're going to read verses 8 through 13, and I want you to listen out for two things. I want you to listen out for the essence of the covenant. What's this thing about? And listen out for the extent of the covenant. See who it's for. What is it about? Who is it for? You ready? Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, I'm going to stop at verse 13. Because we have another one of those, the, fa- the, the, the fancy Hebrew term is chiasm. Another one of these chiastic poems where you've got these parallel ideas that build in one direction, and then those same ideas are mentioned in reverse order. Remember, we as Americans like poetry that rhymes. The Hebrews loved poetry that had similar thought patterns. So I'm just looking at the first half of the poem here. And we're listening out for two things, essence and extent. What's the essence of this covenant pronouncement? It is that God will not destroy the earth again with a flood. He is entering into this relationship with the people and saying, what you just saw happen, having the entire world slaughtered at the hands of a deluge, will never happen again. I know that was horrible for you to see. You will never see it again. Now, that's important, right? It's the essence. God is promising that he will not destroy the entire world again But here's what's even more interesting to me. Not the essence of the covenant, but the extent of the covenant. To whom does he promise this? Well, Noah's obvious. And his sons. Okay, that's obvious. But he also promises to someone else. 
and his son's descendants. Now, um, yeah, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I mean, if you like trace it back, the descendants of Noah would be, well, everybody in this room. God, listen to this, made this covenant with you. But not just you. Also, you notice as we're reading through this, that he makes the covenant, listen to this, with the animals. He promises to protect all the living creatures, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's a pretty inclusive covenant. And listen to this. It's not over yet. God makes this promise not only to Noah and company, not only to you, not only to the animals, but he also makes it with the planet, the earth. So how do you make a covenant with the earth? Well, God does. Look at verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. He says it again, by the way, in verse 11. He says, I will not destroy, I will never again, shall there be a flood to destroy what? The earth. So God, the extent of this covenant goes from mankind to all living things to the earth itself. And God is saying, I will never destroy it again with a flood. Now, now that's the essence, and that is the extent. And, I, and I'll get to the practical significance of that in a moment. But I would just remind you right now that for the original group, this is a very reassuring thing. How many of you, by the way, have ever experienced a flood? Anyone? One, two? I have. And it's a horrible thing. Went to camp, fall of my 11th grade year, tried to come back, couldn't get home because there was a tropical, well, there was a hurricane that went through, and then it came back, and then another hurricane came through, and by the time I got back, the entire river was flooded, and I couldn't get home. There was literally a mile of water between me and the, the house that I was trying to get to. Devastating. The water came up to our house. It never made it into our house, but... We were the fortunate ones. It is a horrific experience, to say the least. If you have ever experienced any form of disaster, you're more sensitive to it than others. Look, these people had just seen God destroy the entire planet. They are sensitive to it. It is like the three-year-old who touches the stove and then is forever afraid of it. From now on, you've got to think, when they see rain clouds, which they had not seen up to this point, they may be tempted to shirk in fear that God had somehow been angry with them, and yet He would relieve them that He would not destroy this planet. See, we just assume that, oh yeah, well God's just good and nice, and He's going to like, keep it all going anyway. No, that, they had seen a holy, righteous God who hated sin and who would easily flood the world and send it back to its pre-creation chaos at the drop of a hat. So this is a good promise. And he wants them to be assured that God, he has good things in mind for this planet. Now, listen to this. As comforted by this. And he, he wanted them to find hope in this. He wanted them to be comforted by this. And he wanted them to know that he would never 
go back on this promise. Notice that he will call this an eternal covenant. Look at verses 14 to 17. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. And then he repeats the sign in verse 17. You see the focal point of this? He wants them to know that don't worry, there's not going to be a point in time in which life as you know it This thing called life, this place called earth, will cease to exist. Now, those of you eschatology fans who are trying to, like, get ahead of me here and think, oh, well, I think I do know of a time where the earth will not exist. Just cool it for a second. We'll get there. But for the rest of us, we need to rest in this right now. God is committed to his original plan. And it was a good one. You like the way things are set up? You like this earth? You like animals? You like being able to rule over it? You like a nice planet? You like seasons? You like good food? Okay, hold on to that. God says, I will keep that going. And I'm even going to establish a sign to make sure that you know it will keep going. Actually, I'm going to make sure you know that I know it's going to keep going. He says, I want to give you a sign. And the emphasis is of the sign. You you see it repeated three times there in the middle of the poem. And so the question is, all right, what's the sign? Well, covenants in the Old Testament typically, not always, but typically had a sign. Uh, The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. That was supposed to be a reminder to those people of the agreement that they had made before God. Uh, Other signs would include that of the Sabbath, for example, and the Sinaitic covenant. Uh, Every seventh day they were going to rest and it was going to help them remember their agreement with God. When we're not doing anything on the seventh day, life will keep going on because God has promised to take care of us. Probably the best example of covenant and sign in our own relationships today is that of marriage and a ring. You know that to be true. Covenant is, I mean, marriage is the closest thing that we have to a covenant relationship in the Bible today. It's a relational agreement. Now, the difference between a marriage covenant and what God does here with Noah is that a marriage covenant is bilateral, a, the Noahic covenant is unilateral. But with that comes a sign. And marriages are so creative today because of Pinterest or whatever. I assume that they still have a ring ceremony. But there's normally an exchanging of rings. Well, I say normally. Interesting. The exchanging of ring ceremony didn't start happening until the 40s when people were actually, like, flying off for World War II. But since the 40s, we've had an exchanging of ring ceremony. No, uh, there actually always has been a pledge of some kind. But what, do you remember what the, what the guy says when he's leading the thing? Here's a ring. I'm not going to give you the non-fancy version. And it's a circle. And this is a symbol of your everlasting love for one another. God says, look, I'm going to give you a sign, and it's going to communicate something significant. His sign is a rainbow. If a ring is an appropriate, or supposed to be an appropriate, expression of the marriage covenant. Why is the rainbow an appropriate expression of God's covenant to creation? Well, I know that we could try to play up the idea that the word bow in the Old Testament 
the scene here is every other time used to refer to the instrument of war, bow and arrow. And throughout Psalms, God is pictured as expressing his wrath toward earth by taking his bow and bending back his arrow. But I, I don't know how much that's the emphasis of this. That is certainly part of it. Yes, God hangs up his bow, but God will exercise his wrath in other ways. So I don't want to lean in on that too much, as creative as it is. What seems to be more clear is the science behind it. When do you see a rainbow? With dark clouds of rain. And when we think of clouds coming and rain falling, especially in this context, what are we thinking? Judgment from God. And yet, it's not just when rain comes, it's when sun shines through it. And what do we think of sun? We think of sun being God's favor shining upon us. God will shine His favor through the dark storms of life. And it is in those moments that we will see the brilliant reminder that He is committed to our good and well-being. And by the way, the reminder is not for us. It says that I will remind myself. So, Would God have forgotten? No, this is an anthropomorphism. This is just God reassuring us that I'm not going to forget. It's it's the the husband who, instead of getting a a normal wedding band, actually has his uh, wedding band tattooed onto his finger because he wants his wife to know that, don't worry, I'm not going to forget this thing. It will always be with me. I will never take it off. And by the way, I'm not advocating you get a ring tattoo. I'm just saying... I've met a few dudes that did that, and I totally got the point. It's a beautiful reminder. God's not going to forget this thing. He will remain committed to our good. There will be great life on this earth will continue. There will not be war. Instead of judgment, there will be grace and favor. You do not have to fear the storms and clouds because I will be forever committed to the good of this world. Friends, this evokes three responses from us. The first one, even though the, the reminder is for him, I would just encourage you every time you see a rainbow, first of all, to thank him. <laughs> to thank him for the fact that he is committed to your good. As the divine ruler of the world, he at any moment could destroy it on account of your rebellion and mine, and yet he has said, I will not do it. I will preserve this institution called a planet and this thing called life to the end because I am committed to you. It is something that we can thank him for. He has given us the opportunity to enjoy a created world and he will forever preserve it in one form or another. The second thing that we can do when we see the rainbow is not just for the Christian, but this is for the non-Christian that's here today, somebody that maybe hasn't entered into a relationship with the Lord himself through Jesus Christ, his son, you not only need to thank him for what you've enjoyed up to this point, but you need to seek him. That covenant is a reminder that God has extended what theologians call common grace to you. Common grace is the idea that uh, God's good reigns fall on the just and unjust alike. Guess what? Every one of us in this room, regardless of where we are with Jesus, get to enjoy good food and nice weather and relationships with other people and relative health. That's God's goodness. That's His common goodness. 
His special saving goodness, though, is not captured in the Noahic covenant. God is not promising in this covenant to eternally save everybody that ever lives. He is promising to preserve life as we know it and creation as we know it. But the question for you is, will you be part of that creation? Will you be able to enjoy that planet that will continue? Will you be part of the humanity that goes on ad infinitum? Is that something that will be for you? See, this Noahic covenant, to be like really clear, is the foundation of God's saving covenant that will ultimately be established in Jesus Christ. This is God saying to the world, hey, we're going to enjoy a generally kind relationship while you're here on this planet, but His wrath can still come in other ways. You experience His goodness, and Romans 2, 4 says that it is to lead you, to draw you to repentance. God wants you to know that He is good. And when you see that rainbow, you need to be reminded that He has been very, very kind to you, but you haven't entered into the saving relationship until you have received Jesus Christ. I would say it this way. If the Noahic covenant is the foundation of this house that is a relationship with God Himself, Jesus Christ is the front door of that relationship. He established it through His death and burial and resurrection in the new covenant. And the only way to fully enjoy the benefits of a created world and life continuing is to enter into a permanent relationship with Jesus alone by faith alone. And so when you see that rainbow, it should remind you, oh, God's given you some good gifts but they will not last forever. You need to seek Him. Thank Him. Seek Him. And when you see the rainbow, I say this to you Christian friends, trust Him. Trust Him for the future. It's here that I want to address something that I think that we often get wrong about our future hope. You heard me praying about it today. I was praying that we would find hope in the future. We read Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. And friends, the truth is though, we actually tend to think that our best hope is right now here on this earth. I don't think that we really think that the best is yet to come. You know why? I think it's because we have an aberrant view of what life will look like in eternity future. Now, philosophically, if you want to know where we got it from, Plato. Plato was the first one to tell everybody that there's a spiritual existence out there somewhere, and then there's this earthly existence, and the earthly existence is bad, but the, the best of all existences is something spiritual, something metaphysical. But if you don't want to follow that line of thought, I'll give you something even more modern. I think that our views of eternity have been more informed by modern movies than Scripture itself. Does anybody remember... My kids probably don't even know this. Does anyone remember the movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven? I think that we think heaven is more like that cartoon movie than what it actually is. What is it? It's a bunch of people and animals floating around on clouds with harps, and they're you know, just going to like sit and sing all day. Look, I don't know about you. I'm just going to be straight up. That is not an appealing existence to me. I do not want to float on a cloud in a white robe holding a golden harp for all of eternity. That is better than hell, yes. But it's just not, it doesn't connect. Now, we may not be so foolish. 
But I think that we think what will happen in eternity is something less than what we currently experience. And therefore, we clamor for this life. We don't look for the one to come. But friends, did you know walking, talking, eating, planet, earth, the things that you enjoy, walking, talking, eating, drinking, that's part of God's plan for eternity future, and he reminds us of it right here. God says, the earth as you know it will exist forever. For the eschatologically inclined, you say, well, what about 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says that God is going to destroy the earth as fire. Look, listen, God will destroy the earth, but that is not a demolition. It is a renovation. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth, and that is repeated over and over again throughout the New Testament. This thing called earth does continue to exist, and everything that you like about it It being a tactile and real place is what heaven itself is like. That's why we read, friends, Romans 8. I mean, have you ever thought through that before? Why is it that creation needs to be redeemed? Why is it that it needs to be rescued? Listen to Paul again as he reminds us not only of our own rescue, but the rescue of the world. It says, verse 19 of chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until the pains of childbirth until now. Listen, creation is experiencing the pains of childbirth. What does that mean? It means that something better is still coming. God intends for you to enjoy existence on a physical or in a physical place. A new heavens, a new earth. And that is something to look forward to. If you've never thought about that much before, you'd like to think more about it. I could suggest a couple of resources to you. One is Derek Thomas, his book on the hope of heaven. Derek Thomas, his book on heaven. And another one, much longer, but very interesting, is Randy Alcorn, who wrote like a 600-page book on heaven. But it reinforces these realities that I would encourage you as believers to actually find hope and trust him that the future will be good. When you see that rainbow Let it be a reminder to you that everything that you love about this world that isn't sinful will exist in the world to come. It is a forever covenant. It is an eternal covenant. God is committed to this plan. And so, that's the happy beginning. You look at it and you're like, all right, I like this. Chapter 9 is awesome. I mean, look, you've got his... His commitment to preserve the world, you see it in his plans and his commands, you see it in his promise and his covenant, and then you get this horrible ending. I mean, verses 18 to, to 20 aren't bad. Uh, you, you, I mean, you, you read there, oh, that's Romans 9, <laughs> sorry, Genesis 9, you, I was like, that is not it. Look at verses 18 and 20, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, that's an indication that something weird is about to happen, but we'll get there. These were the the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth were dispersed. And if you skip down to verse 28, it's just, it's, it's flawless. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years in his diet. But the, the text doesn't go from verse 19 to verse 28. It gives us the rest of it. Follow the story. I won't unpack all of the details, but you'll get the overall picture. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, pause here for a moment. You'll notice some, some similarities between Noah and Adam. Adam was the, the, the figurehead of the entire world. Now Noah is the figurehead of the entire world. Uh, Adam is blessed by God and told to propagate the entire earth. Noah is blessed by God and told to propagate the entire earth. Adam was a man of the land. Noah was a man of the land. Adam has a relationship with a fruit. Noah has a relationship with a fruit. But his... his ends up with the same measure of disgust. As you look at verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, I I could keep reading, but I, I want you to get this. Where have we been with Noah? If you read through Genesis 6, 7, and 8, you think this guy may be the guy. He may be the one who will be that second Adam that we're looking for. He may be the guy that's going to reverse the curse. He's the one that is pictured as righteous and blameless before God, the one who always obeys him. He's the one that Lamech said his father would come and remove the curse or relieve the curse for us. And you're thinking, this guy might be the guy, and then it just ends in a train wreck. And the issue here, by the way, just to be clear, isn't that he made wine. Both Psalms and Deuteronomy point to the goodness of wine. The Scriptures themselves will always, though, warn against drunkenness. And what does Noah do? Here. He drinks the wine. He becomes drunk. And then he shames himself by laying uncovered in his tent. This man of grace becomes the man of disgrace. So we cross him off our list. We realize this guy's not the Savior. He's not it. And let's see how his sons fare. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Ham, and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now we're seeing how Noah's progeny unfolds. So Noah fails, Ham fails. So what's going on here? Listen, it's pretty simple. Ham is a grown man by this point. He has his own children. I could argue that another time, but I won't. He's an older man, he knows better, and so he actually goes into his father's tent. He sees him disgraced and uncovered, and it seems from the text that he mocks his father and even goes out and tries to spread it to his brothers. Oh, here's our high and holy dad, and look how he is right now. You need to come see him. It is a trip. And he's disgracing his dad. And by the way, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there is no greater way to sin. 
You ever notice in the Ten Commandments, you get the stuff that's related to God, and then the first one that talks about our relationships with other people is honor your father and your mother. It comes before lying. It comes before stealing. It comes before murder. And what does he do? The son of Noah. Disgraces, I mean, breaks the greatest, at least in the ancient Near Eastern mind, of the commandments toward men, and he disgraces his father. And yet his other brothers, his other brothers, want to cover up their father's error and sin. They want to still honor him. They don't want to look on him in any shameful way, and so they, the text is awkward. It talks about them putting a cloak on their shoulders and trying to move back, and when they see his feet, presumably, they cover him up. They want to protect his honor. You know what you see here? When you get to the end, you get this new start, you get this new world, and guess what you still got? Two lines. A line of faith and a line of failure. A line of grace and a line of shame. I've told you before, and I will say it again, scriptures always present two alternatives, two kinds of people. And the emphasis here isn't on the sin of Noah. The narrator doesn't unpack that very much. What he wants to get to is the sin of his descendants showing that in the new world, things will still continue along two lines. And what are the fate of those two lines? Well, you listen to it as Noah, verse 24, awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He, he recalled it. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. There would be penalty for this, and it would play itself out through Canaan, interestingly, not through Ham. The question is, well, why in the world would God curse Canaan, the grandson, instead of Ham, the son? Great question. I don't know. I really don't. But I can make a guess. My guess would be that since God already pronounced a blessing, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, on Ham and Shem and Japheth. Noah knows he can't do anything to reverse that blessing. And yet, he would be harmed if his youngest son, Canaan, was cursed. This is a striking blow to Ham. Canaan, though, ultimately is the one who receives the brunt of the curse, and this is the one who would perpetually be the thorn in the flesh of the Israelites as they would try to go back and take the land that God had promised them. They would be forever characterized by this wickedness. That is the one line. There is the line of rebellion that is established here, but then there is also the line of reception, and that is the respectful sons. They receive treatment as well in verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant. Shem, the Shemites, where we get the term Semitic, Semitic languages, the, the Jewish people, they here are going to be blessed, and not just the Jews, but even the, the Muslims, those who would descend. I mean, that, that Arab people group would, would be blessed in a unique way. And then there would be the enlargement of Japheth. This is fascinating because they're not Jews, but notice what it says, let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. These will be the ones who actually enjoy the fruit and useful and good relationship that Shem enjoys with Yahweh. They would be able to enter into his tents. They would be able to benefit from that relationship. 
Time does not permit, but explanation is due. Friends, this is Gentile inclusion in the special promises of God. He would uniquely work through the Semitic line, and yet he would also include others who one day had regarded God's good laws. It's beautiful. But death still comes. After the flood of Noah, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So the question before us then, what's the point here? You think you've got it yet. What's the point here? Well, we see that man gets a not-so-clean slate. He starts off with the penalty having been satisfied, but the presence of sin is still there. The penalty of sin is still there insofar as man still dies. But it begins with the story of God's covenant because it wants to inform us that God's covenant is not made on account of man's righteousness, but in spite of it. God's forever covenant is made not on account of man's righteousness, but in spite of it. You want proof for that? Go back and look in chapter 8 and notice verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man for, on account of, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God says, because man is sinful, I will be gracious. Of all the stories that he could have left us with, why didn't he leave one of them succeeding? He left one a failure because he knows that his people would fail. Even though God had been abundantly good to them, they would still blow it and they would need to be reminded of his goodness extended in the rainbow. Aren't you glad that you read the story of God's rainbow before you read the story of this reprehensible behavior? And you notice what happens here? Another flood doesn't come. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't back it up. Even though things start off on a horrible trajectory, he honors the promise of his word to show grace to man despite sin. This is a great reminder. Though you blow it, friends, the rainbow still shines. This is a lesson on sin. It is still present with us. It is still present with us. I don't care what kind of relationship you've entered into with the Lord. Even if you've entered into a new covenant relationship through Jesus Christ alone, salvation is not the same as transformation, friends. We still will wrestle with sin in this life. And I'm glad that we have a great reminder that this is the way that it works. Because truth be told, every week I'm up here praying and confessing sin, and I'm leading the way and confessing the sin that I am... Uh, participating in on behalf of the congregation. We are all blowing it from time to time. Sin is still present, but what is so good is that we not only get a lesson on sin, we get a lesson on salvation. God is still patient. He is patient. See, what I love about this is we get the good plans of God. We're reminded of His good plans. We're also reminded of the good promise of God. But listen to this. We are also reminded of the good patience of God. He is so patient with those with whom He has entered into a relationship. And this gives us hope to move forward. 
if we enjoy the salvation that is promised in Jesus. Friends, if you're here today, you're not a believer, this is last call. I tell you, you're benefiting from God's patience right now as you breathe his air and eat his food. But that goodness is intended to draw you into the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, the relationship with Jesus Christ that can only come by faith alone. God is patient. He's being patient with you. And dear believer, he's being patient with you as well. You will blow it. You will fail. But his good purposes eternally remain. There's nothing to fear. Have hope. Be encouraged. Step into this week knowing God's good design for you. Let's pray. Father, you've been good. You've been kind. You've given us good, good commands. You've given us a, a covenant of showing your good design. And yet we still fail. But it is a covenant forever. Your good intentions toward humanity in this world exist forever. And that's the foundation. Or the house was built. The door is open through Jesus Christ. That too is an eternal covenant. Lord, a relationship that you have established with us. Lord, on the basis of your son's work, Lord, we enjoy it forever. And we still fail. And one day you will remedy the presence of sin and the power of sin fully, and yet right now we still blow it. And so may we be reminded of your eternally good promises. May we be encouraged this week. May we have hope amid a discouraging world, amid the struggles of our own sin-cursed bodies. So Lord, encourage this church family today as they walk out this week to represent you to live out that eternal relationship that they enjoy with you. In Jesus' name, amen.